Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure to talk with Ethan Siegel about his book, Coins, Trade, and the State, Economic Growth in Early Medieval Japan, that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, this is a fascinating analysis of money, trade, and economy in pre-1600 Japan. It's in a style that's extraordinarily accessible. You don't have to know anything really about um, Japan in order to, or Japanese history in order to get a lot out of the book, but it also is an extraordinary contribution for specialists in the field of medieval Japanese history. Um, Siegel talks about the Mongols and the relationship of medieval Japan and medieval Japanese money history to um, Mongolian history. He talks about relationships between um, medieval Japan and what's happening in China. Um, He also just gives a fascinating account of how to think about commodities and money in exchange in the context of medieval history. It's a wonderful book, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Ethan. Hi, Carla. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Ethan Siegel about his book, Coins, Trade, and the State, Economic Growth in Early Medieval Japan. And that came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Now, I've already briefly mentioned this to Ethan, but I want to say for our listeners, um, this is a really wonderful book to read. It's not only a fascinating analysis of money, trade, and the economy in pre-1600 Japan, but it does a really fantastic job of taking what could be an arcane topic um, and making it really, really accessible. It's extraordinarily readable and accessible and understandable for readers who may come to this like me with absolutely no background. I feel like I learned a ton, um, not only about China or or about Japan, but also about China, which was a a really pleasant surprise. So thank you so much, Ethan, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about it today. Oh, thank you for having me on the program, and thank you very much for the kind introduction. Oh, it's it's completely honest. So um, it, it was, like I said, it was really um, a wonderfully pleasant surprise as a China specialist and one specializing in pre-modern to read a book on Japan and to, and to learn about my own field, which was really fantastic. So Ethan, can you start us off a little by saying a little bit about what brought you to the study of Japan and also maybe what brought you to the study of uh, medieval Japan in particular? Uh, sure. Um, I I guess my encounter with Japan began when I was an undergraduate at Kalamazoo College, and I participated in a year-long study abroad program uh, at Tokyo's Waseda University and lived with a Japanese family during that year. And it was a very positive experience, um, both in terms of what I was able to learn uh, about the culture and about the history and everything else, uh, and I, I was able to make some decent progress in my um, language studies as well. So uh, I guess I've kind of, I mean, the, the quick version is I've been involved with the study of Japan ever since. Um, I went back to Japan again for, that, that was my junior year. I went back during my senior year and uh, did three months of research. I was actually a, a double major in biology and history. So I spent three months at a, a virology laboratory at Osaka University. Wow. Uh, no, no relation to my current work, obviously. Wow. Um, 
but that was uh, very interesting. And um, then uh, was involved for a few years in the automotive industry as a junior executive uh, with a Japanese company. So I've, I've had a chance to uh, be involved with uh, and interact with Japan in a variety of settings. Uh, and when I finally went back to graduate school, I think it was with the intention of getting a degree in Japanese history. Um, but the decision to focus on medieval, uh, that came, I think, during the second year of my studies at the University of Washington, where I earned my master's. Um, I was taking a class on the economic and social history of Japan up to 1900 and uh, was encouraged by the professors. These were as a class co-taught by Susan Hanley and Kozo Yamamura um, to uh, explore a paper on the Shoen system, which was the medieval Japanese landed estate system mm-hmm. uh, and economic factors behind its eventual decline. Um, and they were very supportive of that paper, encouraging of what I had produced and ended up becoming my MA thesis. Um, and then kind of led into my further studies of the economic history of medieval Japan, which I was very fortunate to get to do at Stanford University with Jeffrey Mass, who at that time was was probably the leading historian of Kamakura period Japan, that is late 12th to early 14th century Japan, uh, until his uh, untimely passing in 2001. Um, but when I started, you know, that was the place to go if you wanted to study early medieval Japan. So I was very fortunate to train with him and uh, further build my knowledge of medieval Japan. And that led into this project. Wow. And did I, as a historian of science and medicine in, in East Asia, I have to ask you, did your background in um, biology and in vi- virology, in the virology lab in particular, ever um, make you think of doing a project on the history of science in Japan? Or is that perhaps on the horizon? Can we lure you back into the field? Wow, wow. Can you lure me back? That's always a possibility. There are no immediate plans. I suppose where this conversation may lead. Um, no, I mean, it's always something that's been an interest of mine because of my earlier work. Um, and I'd love to turn to it at some point. Um, I don't think there has been very much done on science in Japan in the pre-modern period. Right. Uh, there's more on China, though, even there, I think it's not as big a field as I'm sure you would like to see and I'd love to see as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe someday, but okay. not in the future. <laughs> so this was uh, this is your first book, is that right? That's correct. Um, so for listeners um, who might be either working on their own dissertations or maybe thinking about revising their dissertations, can you say a little bit about the process of turning the dissertation into the book? Um, did did it change substantially? Were there particular um, parts of the process that really stick out for you as um, really important or really challenging? Or can you say? A little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think in my case, I was strongly encouraged by the people on my committee to try to write a dissertation that was not book ready, but as close to book ready, I, I suppose, as possible. And I don't know if I succeeded in that or not, but I mean, I, I think there are some advisors who will make a very legitimate case to say the dissertation is the one place where you can make it four or 500 pages and you can put in lots of facts that other than for, say, the 20 or 30 people who really read in your specialty might seem obscure. Um, and all that information can go in there in a way that it's more difficult to include in a book because, you know, the publisher, the editor is at a press 
while obviously we don't expect these books to become, you know, John Grisham bestsellers, um, nonetheless, they need to be written, you know, usually the book in a, in a more compact format and with kind of a broader potential appeal. So some of that information gets relegated then to footnotes or endnotes or the like. Um, and that's a very legitimate approach. So if someone listening has a dissertation advisor who's encouraging that, I wouldn't in any way say it's wrong. Um, but I think the people who advised me um, encouraged me instead to try to focus more on kind of the big picture argument, um, to have more of that information in the footnotes when it was necessary, uh, and therefore the transition to a book would be easier. And, and I think it was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly there are sections of the finished book that are different from the dissertation. But in terms of the basic structure, it's relatively similar. Um, major things. I mean, there was some measure of reorganization that went into this, uh, in part because I had the advantage of having friends and colleagues who would read it for me and give me feedback that I tried to take seriously. Um, I also had the opportunity to assign uh, some chapters to graduate students who I was working with and, again, had their feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was really eager to try to make a book that would be readable by someone who didn't bring a lot of knowledge to the table. So I'm really happy with what you were said at the beginning, that it, it seems to have succeeded. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure there was a whole lot else. I mean, there were, there were, of course, new scholarship that I had to incorporate. I mean, I finished the dissertation uh, in 2003 and ended up submitting the manuscript to the press in 2008. And uh, my topic, which is kind of you know, money and trade in pre-modern Japan, has really enjoyed something of a boom in the last, say, 10 to 15 years. So um, it's still, of course, a very small field, a subfield. But there have been a number of notable publications that have come out since I finished the dissertation. So one project was, of course, incorporating some of that newer scholarship uh, into my own work. Um, and just kind of smoothing things out, clarifying that kind of thing. But overall, it was a, a relatively, um, well, I say this now, but relatively painless process. I don't know if I would have said the same thing uh, when it was in the heat of trying to meet the deadlines. But looking back on it, I think it went pretty well. Great. Thank you so much. So sort of getting right into the book. Now, the um, the introduction, I think, does a really great job of setting out, of setting the stage. So you begin with, um, in 1334, with Emperor Go-Daigo proclaiming his administration would begin minting copper coins and printing bills. And I won't ask you sort of too much about what's going on there, because you then bring us right back there toward the end of the book in a really nice parallel way. But So that's one of the things about the writing style that um, is really notable and really great. Um, but the, it gets right into the, the larger issues of the book which is not just um, the question of how the monetization of the Japanese economy affected its social and political institutions. So that's a big theme. But also you talk about sort of not just what does money mean in general? What what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about money? But what did money mean to um, to in the context of Japan that you're talking about? Um, so what about the um, context of this period? And this is um, as early medieval. You're largely focusing on the 12th to the 14th century here. What about this period um, struck you as particularly important with respect to money history? So what what led you into f- to focus on this? period? period um, with an interest in money history? Um, Well, so I guess there are a few things. I mean, this period, beginning in the late 12th century, we're really talking about the 1180s, which is often seen as, you know, probably one of the 
two or three biggest turning points in the grand sweep of Japanese history. Um, and in the, certainly in the pre-modern period, I mean, you know, there's World War II, there's the Meiji Restoration of the 1860s. Um, but the 1180s, uh, because of the Genpei Civil War, is seen as a major turning point. And the longstanding kind of accepted view of this period was that with the conclusion of that war, which was fought by the leaders of two major warrior clans, um, samurai for the first time were able to take a share in kind of countrywide or, or for lack of a better word, national governance. Um, and so, you know, it was largely thought of as up to 1185, um, the emperor and or the nobles and courtiers kind of ruled the country. And following 1185, the warriors came to dominate the country. Um, and that view has come to be challenged over the last several decades. Uh, my late advisor was one of the people most active in that effort um, who showed that the transition was much more gradual, right, that warriors really didn't dominate the country until the 14th century. So we have this period then from kind of the late 12th to the early 14th, which is very much a time of transition, right? Uh, there's a transition in political leadership from, you know, gradually from um, courtiers and nobles to warriors. Uh, and there's a transition in other areas as well. And one of those is the economy. Um, the medieval estates that I mentioned earlier that were part of my focus as a master's student, um, we see major changes in how they are structured. And by the 14th century, uh, the way they even make, they, they make their payments begins to change as well. Uh, and in terms of the economy, of course, as is talked about in the book, we start to see the use of what we would identify as money, right? The use of imported Chinese coins right. and the use of those coins date to really the mid 12th century. so a little bit earlier than the Genpei War, um, but they don't become a major means of payment really until the 13th century. So this is kind of a key moment of, of trans, really kind of moment, I guess, a key period of transition. Uh, and that really grabbed my interest, I think. Great. Now, the book itself, and this is um, this is dealt with in the opening, but it really um, persists throughout the entire work. It makes a point very strongly that um, it's a study that's going to focus on not just the elites, right, and particularly not on the elites. And so you're arguing here um, that during the early medieval period, a wide range of people are participating in these transformations um, of the money economy. And these include traveling merchants, religious figures, warriors, peasants, um, a, a wide range of people. This is one of the most fascinating and striking things, um, again, for a non-specialist, but I imagine for specialists, too, about the book. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, about this um, and about the importance of this in your research. At what point in your research, um, if, either for the dissertation or for the eventual book, did you realize that non-elites were going to be such a central part of the story? Is this something that you went in aiming to do, or is this something that you realized when you got your hands on the source base, or how did this um, emphasis on non-elites emerge in the story for you? Um, I think a little bit of both, that I went in hoping to find evidence of this and certainly looking for it. Um, you know, the truth is, for any pre-modern study, uh, because literacy, because education is so limited in most pre-modern societies, you're inherently facing the problem of most of your sources are written by elites. Um, and I'm sure you could speak better to those in the Chinese case. Um, in my own work, um, you know, certainly the nobles and the top-ranked warriors that we spoke of earlier 
are leaving behind most of the documents, religious figures as well. Um, we don't have documents with rare exception that come from the peasants, for example. Uh, and I speak about all these as though they're set classes. Of course, they aren't really defined in this period as well. Uh, that's a, a common misperception. When you move a little bit forward in time into the Tokugawa period, so then we're talking 17th to mid-19th centuries, um, the Tokugawa uh, warrior government kind of rigidly defines classes, so it's much easier to speak about someone being one or the other. In this period, things are much more in flux. And even among warriors, for example, you have some who are what we would think of as you know full-time, for lack of a better word, samurai, others who are, are warriors who are called up to fight but are farmers the rest of the year, and their levels of education are very varied. Um, uh, it, it's one of the thrills for someone who studies this as, as a very foreign language that sometimes you can actually find the grammatical mistakes that the people you're studying have made in their own writing. Uh, so, but I, I did come into this looking for some of this in the sources because I wanted to try. I mean, the economy is something that affects everyone. These coins were clearly being used by people beyond simply the elites at the top of society. So um, I was looking definitely to try to tell a story that moved that, that focus away from simply the people at the center and looked at what's going on in the provinces. Mm-hmm. And there's also another way in which this book moves away from assumptions that uh, people may be coming to this field with. Um, and that's perhaps a focus on the Tokugawa period, right? As the period in which, um, or the important period, right? For for the um, history of uh, monetization, for economic history. Um, you're making an argument in this book that um, you say at, at one point in the introduction that early medieval commoners, commoners, again, so this is really striking, took steps to build the muscles that the later Japanese would flex. I love that metaphor. This Thank is you. a... This is a really important theme in the book, right? I mean, this sort of, you're not trying to argue here as I read it that this period saw more dramatic change than in the Tokugawa or that it was more widespread, but you're arguing here that this laid an important foundation, perhaps without which we may not have seen um, the dramatic changes in the Tokugawa. So can you say a little bit about um, this period that you're looking at as building the muscles that are flexed later? Sure, sure. Uh, glad you like the metaphor. Um, uh, so, you know, it was very interesting as I started kind of reviewing the literature that was out there on money. Um, much of it really addressed the Tokugawa period only. Um, and some admittedly dated studies suggested the Japanese had, had never used coins before the Tokugawa period, which is patently false. Um and while those studies are, as I said, you know, um, from the first half of the 20th century, and obviously um, we don't turn to those very often anymore, even as a graduate student, when I would have conversations with colleagues who were in other areas, say Tokugawa art history or something, um, and I would explain to them my project, some of them would be surprised because they had no idea that Japanese were using money uh, in earlier periods. So I, I do think that misperception is out there. I think those who specialize in the study of medieval Japan are aware of the fact that the Japanese used money. Um, so this is not like this is a groundbreaking new discovery, but I do think it's something that perhaps hasn't uh, been highlighted enough. So I hope my book can help uh, contribute to rectifying that problem. Um, on the one, well, to, to explain just a little further, there was also a, a perception in the literature, I think, as late as, say, the 1970s or 80s, that 
Japan's Warring States period, the Sengoku period. So we're talking uh, 1467 to 1573 or so. Uh, and these, this was about a century, the last century or so of the second warrior government, the Muromachi Bakfu, during which central authority was very weak uh, and ineffective. And basically the country devolved into almost continuous warfare. And that this was kind of seen as a divide, right? Um, that things that happened before the Sengoku period had little bearing on what happened after. And so by the end of the 16th century, when you get figures like Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, and Ieyasu, who begin kind of unifying the country and creating new institutions, that they that their their um, the amount that they inherited from the earlier legacy was not deemed very important. And this was true in a number of subfields, um, you know, political history, of course, but other kinds of history as well. And, you know, in the last 30 years or so, there have been a number of scholars who've attempted to, to um, cover that divide, to show that there was more continuity than we had thought earlier. Um, and I'm thinking now of, um, of Susan Hanley, of William Wayne Ferris, um, a number of people out there who have done this kind of work. Of course, many people in the arts who can speak to the importance of no, for example, no theater, mm-hmm. um, which continued well into the Tokugawa period. Um, so bridging that divide was kind of an important goal of this book as well. Um, and one final thing, if you don't mind my adding it in. No, not at all. Uh, you know, you, you pointed out um, kind of misperceptions or, or uh, whatever about the medieval period. I think an, another area that I hoped to China kind of um, change was the idea that the medieval economy had been all about land. Uh, and there are a number of scholars, including my late advisor, who focused really on questions of land for good reason. And this was because it's it's probably the topic that comes up the most in the kinds of documents we look at. And now I'm speaking of um, documents like wills and testaments, um, judicial pronouncements, uh, land sales documents, which obviously concern land, these kinds of documents really focused on land. And so, of course, much of the focus of the research and the conclusions that these people reached um, focused on land for good reason. But I think there was more monetary transactions going on than that scholarship might lead us to believe. And the difference, of course, is that documents concerning land tend to be held on to more dearly and for longer periods of time, right? Um, You would think even then, as is true today, that, you know, land or a house or property are among, if not the most important possessions that people own. So they keep the paperwork very carefully. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that stuff got preserved in a way that a cash receipt, right, which may or may not have been drawn up. Well, once the transaction was done, there was less need to hold on to that document. So it does mean, of course, that I have to do um, more digging and a little more speculation at times. Um, but I think the picture is is a more accurate one. That's great. And that actually um, lets us talk a little bit about one of the other really striking things about this book, um, which is the source base, which is your use of sources. Um, it's really striking later on in the book, and this also sort of gets us into the, the next chapters, how you're bringing together very different kinds of sources to tell this story. And you spoke um, a little bit at the beginning of our conversation about um, the particular problem of doing this kind of early history is, you know, we don't have the kind of documentary record that later historians say the 19th 
19th century historians, you know, swimming in documents, right? Right. All kinds of stories. Um, You're you're bringing to bear at various points in these chapters, um, not just um, various documentary evidence from the Japanese side, but also Chinese documentary evidence, um, archaeological evidence, um, some evidence from shipwrecks, um, evidence from images and illustrations and scrolls. Um, So it's it's really kind of inspiring, actually, as a way to um, to think about what it looks like to do medieval history. Can you talk a little bit about some of the kinds of sources that were perhaps um, most surprising to you and or most useful to you in um, opening up the way you thought about this topic? Um, Sure. Uh, I'm not sure what was surprising, but I I do think um, I made a conscious effort to try to incorporate. I mean, I, I think today these sources these kinds of sources, you know, visual materials and archaeology, um, it's not that uncommon for historians to use. But certainly, you know, a generation or so ago, they might have been. And even as a graduate student at Stanford, where I earned my PhD, um, there were conversations with different faculty about what they deemed, you know, what they considered appropriate kinds of sources for historical work and where disciplinary boundaries should be drawn. Um but I was eager to try to, you know, use as wide a range of materials as I could. Um, certainly one of the most memorable anyway is the image that appears on the cover of the book. Um, it's an illustrated picture scroll, uh, the very famous market scene from uh, the record of the, the holy wandering priest Ipen. This is a very late 13th century source. Um and it was created by Ipen's followers. He was the, the founder of a particular Buddhist sect in Japan. Um, and the goal, of course, of the scroll is to, you know, celebrate his life and his achievements. Um, so the fact that one of the stories that takes place at a, a market, the Fukuoka market, um, the fact that that's not really the goal. I mean, the purpose of this was not to celebrate the market or in any way, therefore, to try to highlight it in some way that might have been exaggerated or, or deceptive. It's merely a background to the story about Ipen. So I'd, I'd like to think, you know, I, I feel I can reasonably assume there's a certain amount of um, trustworthiness we can place in its representation of the market. Um, and I chose it for the, the cover scene in part because we see people carrying out transactions in cash, right, in, in copper coinage, um, as discussed later in the book itself. Um, and curiously, this same um, visual image was used by uh, Japan's government television station, NHK, back in 2001 when they created uh, the, the, that year's um, historical drama, which focused on this period. And they needed a market scene. This was the image they turned to when they designed the set. Um, so certainly there were some visual sources, and there are a few others that are mentioned in the book. Um, archaeology also is increasingly important to the work that I and others who do pre-modern history um, try to explore. Um, and there were a number of archaeologists, the work of Suzuki Kimio, among others, um, who have um, really focused on uh, coin finds, that is, coins that are unearthed. Um, and particularly in the late medieval period, this appears to have been a, a widespread practice. And we're not exactly sure why whether these coins were buried because people you know, didn't have a bank they could deposit them in, or whether because as warfare became more prevalent, they figured this was the safest way to preserve you know, their, their wealth, or whether for other reasons, perhaps religious, for example. Um, it's not entirely clear, but certainly they, they are a, we are able to use buried coins as um, a good indicator of how widely 
um, cash circulated in the society. So um, there are a variety of sources I was able to use. Um, most of them, of course, were documents, were written materials. Um, and there again, I, I tried to be as wide-ranging as I could. Um, a lot of the focus, or because my desire to focus on the provinces, a lot of the materials came in connection with these medieval estates that I mentioned earlier. And um, the best medieval estate um, record keepers were usually religious institutions, temples. So particularly the temples um, Todaiji and Toji, which held showin across the country um, and had a lot of correspondence back and forth between people on those estates. Uh, those were both very important source collections for my work. Um, and I was happy about that also because I hope it helped me avoid the, the dangers of a regional bias, right? That if I had tried to focus only on one part of the country, um, then obviously critics could say, and they still might say, that, well, that particular region of the country was not indicative of the entire country. But because Toji and Todaiji held estates really scattered across the country, I, I hoped I could minimize um, that danger. Uh, and then I guess a final major source of information were the documents produced by the warrior governments, right? The Kamakura Bakfu, and then later the Muromachi Bakfu. But um, most of my focus, as you noted, is 12th to 14th, so it's primarily the Kamakura Bakfu. Um, and here I had the benefit of historians who have come before me because um, the number of documents that survive from that period, 12th to 14th centuries, is very impressive, but it's manageable enough that pretty much everything that has been uncovered has been compiled and published somewhere. Wow. Um, so there certainly were times when I went back and, and in my research in Japan, looked at original documents. Um, but at least to get started, pretty much everything I needed to find, I could find in a published form somewhere. That's great. Uh, yeah. There was a, a remarkable historian, uh, Takeuchi Rizo, who created, uh, I think it was 43 or 44 volumes, a uh, compendium of basically everything that he considered a document that he could get a copy of called the Kamakura Ibun. It doesn't actually include everything. More documents always come to light, um, but it's certainly an excellent place to start. And there are others who have compiled um, basically every law or legal pronouncement from the Kamakura Bakfu. So with these sources, you're able to get a good start. And from there, of course, you can turn to original source collections held only in Japan and look at the um, you know, primary materials. Great. Thank you. So you mentioned trustworthiness and you mentioned coins um, earlier. And so that brings, let's, let's talk about the coins. Let's get, sure, get into sure. it. Um, so the, um, the book moves into a discussion of, um, uh, in the next chapter, it opens with an epidemic, right? Chapter one, this is the money disease or cash fever in 1179, yes. um, which lets us um, into this story of coins in pre-modern Japan. Now you talk a little bit about the um, the earlier sort of eighth to tenth century um, relationship um, with China, right? With Tang China and um, uh, copper coins coming in from China and the the sort of um, mixed relationship or the mixed responses toward the issue of Chinese coins being in Japan um, at that point. And this issue or this theme of um, coins from China being um, kind of emblematic of some sort of relationship between Japan and China during this period really persists in a really fascinating way throughout the book. 
Um, can you talk, um, if we move for a minute to sort of focus on the, on the kind of meat of the book in the, in this chapter, um, the influx of Chinese coins in the 12th century and mm-hmm. the response to it. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because this continues to be an important theme throughout the story. Right. So the Japanese back in the, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth centuries came into contact. They had been in contact earlier, but, but perhaps at a greater level with Tang Dynasty China, which was by far the most advanced and spectacular civilization, at least in their part of the world, perhaps in the whole world at this point in time. Um, and among the many institutions that they adopted from their, you know, the Chinese was the idea of, um, or, or the institution of using um, copper currency. Um, and so they began minting their own coins. Um, the Wado Kaichin discussed in the book uh, from 708, uh, and clearly, if you could hold up two of these coins, and there's a picture which does something like that, if you could hold up two of these coins, right, the, the Tang Dynasty Kaiyu and Tongbao coin and the Japanese Wado Kaichin coin, you'd see they're the same size, the same materials, the same design. Even the style of the calligraphy is very similar on the inscription. So clearly, the Japanese were patterning them, their own money after that of China. And they continued to produce this money uh, until the mid-10th century, but it didn't find much success among the people. Um, for a variety of reasons discussed in the book. Um, Certainly one of them was the Japanese lacked a sufficient supply of copper, one of the key ingredients. Um, Another may have simply been that the Japanese economy was not as advanced or sophisticated as that of China and wasn't ready to really embrace a money economy at that point in time. So these coins, you know, died out by the mid-10th century, certainly, and instead people turned to commodity forms of money, So rice, silk, other kinds of cloth um, were primarily used in exchanges. Um, I I don't refer to this as barter, as some others do, because some of these goods were not. It was not a question of, I need eggs and my counterpart needs apples, so we swap eggs for apples. Instead, people were using goods like silk as a, a money commodity, right? That I didn't necessarily need silk at the moment, but I would accept it as a form of payment. So I I call this commodity money. Um, But by the 12th century, we start seeing Chinese coins again, not Chinese coins made in Japan, Chinese-style coins, rather actual Chinese coins imported from China. Um, And initially, the elites, these are the nobles and courtiers, um, as is described in the book, are very much opposed to this, and they write about it. That's where this term cash fever uh, comes from. Um, They see it, I think, as an affront to their political authority that they had adopted also Chinese ideas of what it meant to rule a country. You know, as, as I'm sure you know and many listeners know, the Chinese emperor sets the calendar and determines the reign name and obviously appoints the ministers. And one of the things the emperor is supposed to do is, you know, certify or mint the currency. So these Japanese leaders, even though they were not at this point claiming to be the equivalent of the Chinese emperor, Still, they saw it as an affront to their authority, and so they opposed the use of Chinese money in Japan, but they failed in their efforts to ban it. They tried to ban it repeatedly, but clearly its use continued to increase, and by the 13th century, I guess if you can't beat them, join them. We have nobles using this money as well. 
Mm-hmm. This um, It's really interesting that you're bringing up trustworthiness again and trust, because this is also a theme that in various ways becomes extraordinarily important to the story. All right. I mean, we'll talk a little bit um, in a little bit about the importance of this for um, the sort of certificates of credit, right? For the banknotes that start, we're not banknotes, but for um, what are they called? I'm looking at so bill of exchange, right? The bills yes. of exchange, but trust and the importance of trust to the functioning and development of a money economy is all throughout the story. At one point, um, you talk about the the fact that some elites are criticizing the use of Chinese coins as essentially being functionally equivalent to counterfeit coins, mm-hmm. which is really conceptually interesting. But I won't harp on that too much because we'll come back to this trust issue. Um, yeah, and, the, uh, sorry? I was going to say the trust issue is, is a really, as you noted, a really key issue because people will read this and they'll say, well, why, why did people come to trust in the Chinese coins, right? right? If there's no Japanese government backing, and it's it's a thorny issue, one that I don't think I'm able to resolve fully, and hopefully others will pick up the trail and, and continue to work on this problem. Um, clearly, I mean, there are some who have argued that it reflected um, that Japan was in a zone of Chinese economic influence and that the fact that it had the stamp of the Chinese government on it was sufficient, and that may have been part of it. Um, I argue, uh, I don't disagree with that, but I try to suggest some other potential reasons um, having to do with the advantages of using monetary cash rather than commodities as um, your medium of exchange. And, and these aren't exclusive answers. I mean, both could be true, um, but it's, it's a very important issue. And I wish I could, I wish I had the, the records of a merchant family, for example, that said, Here's why we're switching to money, but unfortunately, such a smoking gun document doesn't exist. Right. Now, this, you move us into the story from um, the these initial um, experiments with and uh, relationships to copper cash into um, a, sort of an elaboration of the story of the spread of money and of markets in particular. Um, in this period. And so the next chapter looks specifically at the spread of markets and monetization in the 13th century. Um, now, in this period, um, the local markets become incredibly important um, to what's happening in the money economy and to what happens in the 13th century. Um, they're important sites for the use of cash. Um, and this goes on to build um, what become incredibly important later on, which is a system of regional networks of regional exchange that are not necessarily tied tied to a center periphery set of exchanges, right? Can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, local markets and the development of local markets to this story? And and I'll say, um, to sort of uh, frame this for listeners, there's a really wonderful section um, in this book for those who haven't had a chance yet to read it on the history of markets and what counts as a market and the location of markets. And um, so it's it's a really great resource for people interested in that. Oh, well, thank you very much. No, these these markets are key um, for a variety of reasons. Um, In the idealized um, medieval estate system, as it existed in the Heian period, um, it was very much a center-dominated or capital-dominated system. Uh, The the reason elites liked this system was it was a way for them to extract wealth from the countryside. Um, Much of that was done in rice, which was a primary medium of exchange, but it wasn't only rice. Um, States were expected to pay a whole range of goods, and either the nobles, who were primarily based at the capital, or the religious institutions, the temple shrines, um, which could be in various parts of the country, um, could demand certain combinations or certain mixes of goods from their estates. 
Uh, and of course, those were tied to the local geography. So estates along the ocean might be expected to produce salt. Um, estates that were in the mountains might be expected to produce metal ore because um, they could mine for it, this kind of thing. Um, but the the people at the center would use these you know, taxes or rents to satisfy their needs or to exchange them for others. But with the advent of local markets, this system could be circumvented, right? Um, now it means that uh, the local estate could sell its produce in a local market and either get another good or get cash and use the cash to pay um, the central government or um, the temples or the nobles. And there are a number of advantages to this, right? If, for example, um, conditions have changed, your, your um, iron ore has been exhausted or conditions are no longer favorable to you growing certain kinds of crops, well, you don't have to negotiate now with the center to change that, that agreement. Instead, you can simply sell what it's better for you to grow and buy now what you need to or pay cash to the center, and they can use it to acquire goods on their own. So it really allows, you know, it becomes almost, it, it builds on itself, right, that these kinds of things um, allow the locals to grow or produce goods that are best suited to their individual circumstances, which presumably means higher yields, so they can then use the surplus to buy more things or invest in the land. So, you know, th that's why I very tentatively use the term economic growth for this period. Um, you know, we don't have the signs of economic growth that an economist will want to see. And I'm sure there'll be some economists who will take me to task for this. Um, but given the limited kinds of sources that we have, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence to suggest that the economy is slowly growing in this period. Uh, and local markets are a key reason for that. The other key factor, I guess, to the local markets is they're a, a, an important site where the introduction of cash takes place, right? Because people on you know landlocked estates had little opportunity to interact with merchants dealing with China directly. But as the cash starts to spread throughout the country, the markets become the key sites um, where they're introduced to people. And so uh, by the end of this period, we see even in visual sources, for example, pictures of men walking about with coin purses on their hip. Um, and, of course, as I mentioned, the buried coins that are found throughout the country. Right. So I, I think we can't ignore the importance of markets to this story. That's great. And you're mentioning also kind of as part of this story, um, commoners or people, we'll say people having the option of paying their taxes in cash, right? Now, this was itself um, uh a historical development, right? I mean, this is this is something that had to happen, and uh, it, it wasn't automatic. Um, and this is something that you talk about, in particular, in the context of um, commutation or daisenol. Is that mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. Which becomes popular, um, in particular, at the late in the late thirteenth century, right? That's right. Um, so, why the late? What's special about the late thirteenth century, and why why at that time? You talk about it um, very convincingly in the book, but for listeners who may not have um, have had a chance to read this. Um, this is I'll I'll, um, I'll just kind of frame this by. There's a chapter here on um, two, the development of two related or um, two related major um, major events. Well, not events here, but two major developments here. This is the development in the late 13th century of um, commutation, right? The ability to pay your taxes or pay your fees in cash with, in, rather than in silk or in rice, so and so forth. And also right. the emergence of these bills of exchange that we were talking about, which are super interesting and bring up all kinds of issues, you know, 
know, related to these trust relationships that we were talking about. So I guess um, I'll just put it this way. Either one of these, can you talk a little bit about um, in this period, late 13th and uh, perhaps 14th century, um, these two things happen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure, sure. Um, no, I agree. I mean, I find them fascinating, and I hope I was able to convey that in the book. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, in terms of the, the, the real takeoff for monetary use in the late 13th century, um, you know, there's several factors that probably paid, played a key role in this. Um, one of them, and, and maybe the most interesting for historians of Japan who don't always tend to look beyond Japan's borders, um, were changes that happened on the Asian continent, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, 1270s, we're talking now about the fall of the Southern Song, mm-hmm. uh, the creation of there were, you know, the, the success of the Yuan Dynasty. Um, and one of the steps that the Mongols implemented was uh, the institution of a paper money policy, mm-hmm. which probably meant that copper cash, Song Dynasty copper cash, which was the most widespread form of cash found in Japan, became, um, well, less valuable anyway in China, right? Because it couldn't be used according to the government. So people were more willing to export it. So although the, the, the importation of Chinese cash had been going on for over a century at this point, um, presumably, although again, we don't have the smoking gun document that says, you know, from some Japanese merchant, oh, this happened. I, I wish we did. But nonetheless, it seems quite logical to conclude that from the 1270s, the Chinese were much more willing to export cash to places like Japan. Um, so that was a key reason we see cash more widely used in Japan from this point. Uh, another, though, had to do with these markets we spoke of earlier, that as the markets become more widespread, I and mean, again, this thing builds on itself, as I suggested earlier, those at the center also have the ability to, and even the advantage of accepting their tax payments in cash, and they can use that cash then to buy whatever they want at markets in or around the capital. So it works to everyone's advantage by, by allowing taxes to be paid in cash. Mm-hmm. Um, the only risk, I suppose, is if there are going to be price differences between the local market and the central market. And those surely did exist. And in the book, I discuss a couple of attempts by people to try to get that information. But it was very difficult, right, to, because, you know, uh, the time it took for a letter to go between, say, an estate and its proprietor at the center might be weeks um, those prices, of course, fluctuate seasonally and well as well as on, you know, the weather and the harvest and this kind of thing. So unfortunately, it was difficult for people at this time to really take advantage of knowledge in, in price differential. Um, as far as the bills of exchange go, they also get their start in this period, um, 13th century, although the ones I discussed the most actually date to the uh, 14th and 15th centuries. Right. Um, and that's in part because the best documented cases are those where there was trouble. And so the ones that I discussed, for example, at Nimi Estate um, date to the 1460s when this period of um, civil war was beginning and presumably the risks were much greater and so estates were willing to turn to these. To just briefly explain what they are, um, the way I kind of conceive of the system is you would have a traveling merchant who would come to a, you know, a provincial estate and agree to uh, acquire a certain amount of goods, rice or other kinds of agricultural products. And in exchange for that, the merchant would give the estate manager uh, a piece of paper that said this can be, you know, upon presentation of this paper, the bearer is to receive usually 10,000 coins. It was a pretty standard amount, um, 10 kanmon or 10,000 coins. Sometimes they would have some additional provisions in them 
to provide for security. So they would say it must be redeemed by a certain date or cannot be redeemed until after a certain date or that it's to be presented at this location, but the coins will be picked up at a different location, I assume to prevent robbery of, of the person paying out. So they're actually rather sophisticated devices. And the estate manager would pay out the agricultural goods, take the piece of paper, and send it to his the person to whom he owes the taxes, um, you know, the temple or the noble. And there are a number of advantages to this system, right? You don't have to transport big, bulky strings of cash, um, less likelihood of robbery, though it still could happen. Um, and in fact, these paper certificates were accepted enough by the 15th century that some of them circulate repeatedly. They're passed on from person to person, almost like paper money in a way, right? Yeah. So it really suggests that the economy has become much more sophisticated uh, and is much better at dealing with these questions of trust by the 15th century than it had been, say, in the 11th or 12th. Yeah, and that's um, sort of that's one of many moments in this book, at least for me, um, that show a, a real thoughtfulness about these categories, right? I mean, the, the thinking about what could count as paper money. What, you know, why would somebody trust this? Um, think the previous chapter talks about as well um, the the importance of virtue, right? So, so taking this theme of trust and trustworthiness um, through with a really wonderful set of examples of um, so this opens in 1297 with the Kamakura Bakfu um, issuing edicts that declare um, outstanding monetary debts among the uh, direct retainers, right, to be forgiven. And you tell a story of, you know, why would they have done that? Um, what What's to be gained there um, that's related to ideas of, of virtue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, so... Um you know, I think it's common in every society that um, there maybe it's human nature. We want to think that the people who do well in society deserve to do well, right? And so even in our contemporary modern North American society, you know, we, we like to think that our sports heroes will be good looking and will manage their money well. And, you know, the actors on TV or in the movies, or whatever, again, you know, people who look good, act good, or people who enjoy success deserve it. Um, and I, I have to assume there was something similar in this period, so that um, in Japanese, the character for uh, virtue, which is pronounced in Japanese as toku, um, is a homonym for a character which means to profit, which also is read toku, though it's a different um, you know, ideogram. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, those two ideas were easily conflated, um, probably on purpose, by certain figures. Um, so the idea that uh, people who profited were virtuous people was one that Muromachi period uh, thinkers, anyway, did not shy away from. And in the Muromachi period, uh, the warrior government actually tried to tax wealthy commoners and called this a tax on the virtuous. Although I have to assume if you were labeled, you probably weren't very happy about it because it meant you had to pay more. Um, as far as the, the virtuous government decrees that you mentioned from 1297, these are um, perhaps the best known economic or economy-related decree of the Kamakura Bakfu. Um, the situation was one in which its retainers were finding themselves in very, very difficult financial situations. And so the common perception is the Bakfu tried to save them by saying all debts that our retainers owe are hereby automatically forgiven. Uh, and it didn't work. Uh, as you can imagine, if you suddenly say all these monies that are owed to other peoples in society, 
are no longer owed, it, it throws the economy in chaos. And in fact, just a little over a year later, the Bakfu rescinded this very decree. Um, what we see through the documents is that retainers could no longer get loans when they needed them because, of course, what moneylender wants to risk um, capital on that kind of a, a loan. Um, so, uh, but the, the idea that these were virtuous decrees is one that goes back all the way to early Japanese history. So, um, for example, Emperor Nintoku, who um, his character itself contains that character virtue, right, was very famous for having forgiven taxes on the people when he saw they were suffering. Um, and the idea of tokusei, which is the Japanese term for these edicts, continues throughout into um, the Warring States period, into the Tokugawa period, and even into modern times. So you could find examples in the last two decades when, as we know, modern Japan's economy has not done as well as it had, say, in the 1980s. You'll find um, modern newspapers talking about tokusei in the press, right, the need to forgive debts. So it's a very powerful concept, uh, an idea that persists really throughout the span of Japanese history. That's great. And that um, I won't ask you too much about this because I um, I don't want to keep you for two hours. I would love to keep you for two hours, actually, but, you know, okay. if you have other things to do. But there's another um, really interesting discussion in that chapter for listeners who may be interested in this, which was also very um, pleasantly surprising, again, uh, to someone who didn't know much about this topic coming in, of the Mongol invasions and of um, the sort of ramifications of the Mongol invasions to these policies and to um, this sort of period in economic history of Japan, which is, it's really refreshing, um, actually, to see discussion of the impact and the relationships of Mongol invasions to um, to Japanese history. Um, so that was really interesting. Okay. Oh, well, thank you. I know um, there are a number of people, Bruce Batten among them, who've really tried in recent years to highlight the importance of Japan's connections to its neighbors during the medieval period, which weren't always emphasized. And so I, I hope I was able to succeed in that effort as well. Absolutely. And I think that's something that, um, I mean, if we sort of think toward broader trends across East Asian studies, right, or across the field, it seems like more and more people are trying to think in more broadly Eurasian um, terms and sort of look at these connections rather than staying um, to, uh, so sort of analytically staying to nation state categories, which you know, historiography has done for so long. And I think that's, that's one of the things um, about this book that's so interesting and refreshing is you are very explicitly all over the place, sort of showing very clear relationships between um, what's happening and what we now consider China, what's happening and what we now consider Japan and the Mongols. So that's, it's really, I hope that's a foundation for um, a lot more work to come in that, um, in that vein. It seems very much um, the way to study economic history, right? Is you need to look at these exchanges. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you. So the end of the book um, brings us from the late medieval to beyond, and you go into the 16th century, the 17th century. Um, there are huge changes um, in the Muromachi. Bakfu period, as, as you show here, um, changes in foreign policy, changes in the way they deal with money, with cash. Can you say a little bit about um, these major changes that happen and perhaps bring us into the early modern period, um, which the, the which the book ends with, really? Sure, sure. Um, well, so there's no question that the early – one of the things that allows historians to speak of the Tokugawa period, so – 1600 to 1868, as an early modern society, is the economic growth and the development of uh, an urban economy, a consumer economy, 
that takes place during these years. Um, and I, I hope I make clear in the book, I'm not in any way trying to, to challenge that. Um, there's no question that the scale of economic growth uh, and of transactions that take place and of monetization uh, that occurs in the Tokugawa period is, is much greater than what happens in the period I'm studying. But I do think there are links that should not be ignored, right? Um, from the shape and design of the money, uh, the Tokugawa begin minting their own currency in the 16, excuse me, 1630s, something that had not really happened in Japan since the 10th century. Um, but they still fall back on these established patterns. The copper currency is round with a square hole with the inscription on one side of the face. Um, and this was money that people in Japan were familiar with not because they were familiar with the old 10th century Japanese coins. They were familiar with it because of the imported Chinese cash of the medieval period. Uh, and in fact, the Tokugawa, despite the fact that they were a very powerful regime, had uh, some difficulty in getting their money accepted. So the period from the 1630s to the 1670s is one of gradually uh, seeing the Tokugawa currency come to supplant um, at that point, the most common Chinese coin, which was the Eidaku coin, uh, I think in Chinese, Yongle is the dynasty name. Um, so, you know, clearly this medieval money found acceptance and was not easily abandoned, right? So that's one legacy that the early modern owes to um, its medieval ancestors. Um, there are a whole range of others that are discussed in that, in that conclusion as well. Um, we, you know, I tried to look at the use of money as um, included in coffins and, and the burying of the dead. Um, the idea of tokse, of course, which we've already talked about, um, which is, again, a term that is um, referred to in the Tokugawa period. Um, the changes, of course, are very, very significant. The Tokugawa bakfu is um, certainly far more powerful than its Muramachi predecessor. Um, the kinds of money that are being used are much more diverse. The Tokugawa have a trimetallic system. They use gold and silver as well, um, large gold coins and unminted silver. And the Tokugawa are clearly engaging in government-supported trade with China. Um, as is well known, China is um, you know, the world's silver sink. It's taking in all the silver it can get. And the Japanese are exporting silver. Some estimates suggest, suggest as much as a third of the silver that went into China in the 17th century originated in Japan, right. uh, even though much of our focus has been on New World silver from Peru and other places. Um, and the Japanese are exporting copper as well. So there are a lot of very important differences, uh, but there's some continuity is there, and I just hope that this suggests ways in which um, those points of continuity deserve our attention. Great. Thank you. Well, Ethan, um, as we wrap up, there's a lot in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich study. Is there anything in particular um, that we haven't talked about in our conversation, but that you want to mention for listeners who may not have had a chance um, to read the book that you want to make sure that you get out there? Um, well, I, you've done such a great job in highlighting um, the most important points. I don't know if there's anything left to talk about, um, but uh, I just hope that... Um, People might approach this book uh, with the understanding that it, it tries to give a, a broad introduction to what's going on in this economy. Um, I did make a conscious effort to try to write it in a way that someone without a lot of background could appreciate. And that along with, of course, discussions of the economy and economic institutions and trade and the like, um, and I know coins don't sound like the most exciting topic, um, but you'll find a lot of other stories 
from everything, uh, you know, from what might be the realm of folklore to um, religion to art and art history. So that I, I hope it's able to kind of give you a broader introduction to medieval Japan beyond simply questions of money and trade. Absolutely. And for um, I'll just add for listeners, again, who who may not um, be specialist in this area, who may not know anything about Japanese history even, you don't have to come into this book even knowing what the bakfu, what bakfu means. You don't have to come in knowing when the heian is. All of this stuff is laid out really, really clearly, um, but in a very engaging way. So this is just for listeners who may feel like they're interested in the topic, but they don't have any background. This is the perfect kind of book. This is a perfect book, um, not kind of, but... Um, um, to give you that introduction. So don't be scared off if you don't know any of these, uh, know when the Tokugawa is. This is all explained um, in the course of the book. So, Wait. Ethan, what's next for you? What are you excited about now? What, what are you um, working on now that um, is, uh, is inspiring you? Well, the, the new long-term project, um, which is still early, of course, um, is looking at um, questions of women and gender in the same period. Um, there are kind of three, what do I hope will be rudimentary chapters. Well, I hope they'll be polished chapters. At this point, they're rudimentary. Um, that'll form part of a larger book project. Um, one is a study I have been doing on, uh, particularly on the life of the wife of the first Kamakura Shogun. Uh, her name was, she's known commonly as Hojo Masako. Um, she's one of the few female figures who get mentioned by name in most textbooks on pre-modern Japanese history. Um, but in, while doing the research for the book that we just discussed, I was very surprised to find um, 13th century sources that discussed her as having been a shogun in her own right. Um, and while everyone acknowledges her as having been a very powerful figure, um, that to me was very surprising. So it led me to do a lot more research on her life, and I've given this as, as a conference paper now at a couple of different venues. Um, and uh, she's a great window into kind of looking at the state of gender relations and women's status in warrior society at the very end of the 12th and beginning of the 13th centuries. Um, there is an, another uh, aspect of this project where I've been looking at changing marriage patterns um, where married couples live after they get married. You know, does the wife move into her husband's family or vice versa? And again, um, this is another way in, or another peer, way in which the Kamakura period is an era of transition because we see um, differences in these patterns that carry over into the Muromachi period as well. Um, so there are those two. Uh, there's also uh, something I'm hoping to look at soon, looking at um, women on the medieval estates that we've spoken about. Uh, this would push the project into kind of the 14th and 15th centuries a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but that chapter still needs a little more work. But, but hopefully the next project, in, in a few years anyway, um, will come out as a book on women and gender in this period. Great. So I'll look forward to talking with you again in a few years about that I'd project. That would be great. <laughs> well, Ethan, thank you so much for making the time um, to talk with me about this today. It's It was such a pleasure to read the book. It's great stuff. Um, and best of luck with your current project. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I hope uh, things are clear for listeners. And I wish you good luck with your work as well. I really appreciate your efforts with this. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.